There was a time when my people knew peace. A time when the ancient territories thrived. Under the good king, Vincent I. Then his son took the throne. He sold his soul to be bounded by darkness, morphing into the evil chaos wizard Vincent the Terrible. Flanked by his cowardly goblin servant Pritchard Thrax, they quickly betrayed the sacred pact of the territories established by the good king Vincent I. The evil sorcerer depleted the territories of their resources and left them smoldering as he built his new empire. I, Vincent the Terrible, ruler of Spartacus Entertainicus, will be acknowledged as your god, Richard Thrax. Yes, master. Send soldiers to the territory ruins to slaughter more commoners. Yes, my omnipotent employer. Who has never done wrong even once? As long as my kingdom stands, all others shall burn. Now, my people know nothing but war, famine, suffering succotash promos. But on this day, a prophecy has been fulfilled. A hero has come of age. We will journey to him and plead that he fulfill his destiny and bring back peace to our land. This is the epic of Mantar. want a cold open nick how's this <laughs> i mean hope that works all right hello welcome i'm nick alexander dungeon master of this episode with me is level 16 bard tyler wood hey thank you i'm, I'm happy to be welcomed by nick who like mantar is the horniest member of this trio <laughs> And we are joined by Tent Dwelling Scout Goblin, the man scout, Jake Manning. Okay, so we've got a fantasy theme. All right, already. I, I follow along. I don't worry. I finished the last episode of Ahsoka, so I feel like I'm all caught up. I've just started Clone Wars. I still have only seen two of the, the Lord of the Ring movies, and I don't plan to see the rest of them. I saw two of them, and I'm like, good enough. No, the ring ends up in a volcano, and that's all I need to fucking know. So I'm not forced to watch those movies anymore, but I am forced to be here to talk about Mantar. I've been getting really into power metal, which is like songs about goblin and night wars. 
that's why we're doing this. So yeah, so today we're discussing Germany wrestling great, Gold Dust Bodyguard, Tank from the Truth Commission, but most importantly, the Mighty Mantar. <laughs> we're obviously gonna have some fun in this episode. It's Mantar. But Mike Halleck Mantar is yet another one of those wrestlers that fans believe just poofed out of thin air, had a hokey gimmick in WWF, and then never wrestled again. And that's, uh, again, not the case. I see a lot of parallels with someone from the same time period who had very similar circumstances and, funny enough, also named Mike. Mike Shaw, Bastion Booger, or someone like a Rick Titan. They did good shit, just not on Raw every Monday. Mantar is five or six months of Mike's 28-year career, give or take some dormant stages. And if you want to talk like steady work, getting paid super well, wrestling in front of big crowds, Mike had just as good of a career as just about anyone we've ever talked about, excluding the Eddies and Dusties of the world. Yeah, and he like he was in the mix with all those occupational gimmicks, those weird gimmicks, like the goon with Wild Bill Irwin. But at the same time, too, like, a lot of those guys that got those gimmicks put on them, they'd already had these really interesting and fascinating, wonderful career in the territory system, or was doing amazing work in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, or with Mike, you know, debuting as late as he did, he kind of missed out on all that. So like, this was like kind of his only option at a possibility of success. Anytime you get to a company like WWF, you're like, you're hoping the timing works out. Like if you get signed by WWE, hopefully it's the time that they're really into indie guys. Where if you were the hot indie guy in 2009, going to WWE would be a big fucking mistake. Unless you were like maybe two or three people, (laughs) you know, but then showing up in 2015 was the great time to be there. But then a little bit after the pandemic, you were just grinded meat that was run through NXT, then fired. And then you got to go off and find a career now in the dwindling indie scene so it's all a matter of timing like obviously if you had like big dreams of success probably not the best timing but as far as what he had available to him as far as opportunities go pretty solid i I think and he made the most of it yeah this is really the first i'm checking out of mantar's career and I always knew about Mantar as like the joke gimmick that everybody would make fun of. It was on Botchamania and just like the whole idea of it was was absurd. But checking out some of his other stuff, he just seems like an all around tough motherfucker. And it's always funny to see the like toughest guys get stuck with that goofy gimmick. Like someone who could obviously beat up most of the people. He's just like such a stout, rotund man. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like, hey, man, we're going to stick this weird ass head on you. Go out there and have fun. And that shows where some of them are at at the time. Like, they're there to try to make the best of a bad situation, try to make a chicken salad out of chicken shit. And um, he had a solid overall career where a great representation of a journeyman that never quite made it to the upper echelon of any particular company, despite being a solid worker. Mike Halleck was born May 14th, 1968 in Omaha, Nebraska, and was the adopted son of Bob and Marjorie Halleck. Sorry if this is how you're finding out. But that leads to my next point. Mike was but a vessel for Mantar, who was a Minotaur warrior killed in battle in ancient times, but as his soul traveled to Valhalla, it was caught in a wormhole in the space-time continuum, transporting him to modern times into the body of this baby, which in true mythology and or comic book fashion, he was obviously adopted and raised by mortal parents. 
That's what Jim Cornette said. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's just a few more goddamn motherfuckers in there. So. <laughs> Mike grew up as a hockey player, and that was his first dream. He said he was always one of the better players on a team, better players in the league. But around Hold on, s- this motherfucker like had skates on? Yeah. <laughs> like, this motherfucker? They had ice hockey boots that had the ankle size of some people's waists? Like, <laughs> this motherfucker on skates had to be the most terrifying thing because he was around in a time where you could like literally murder somebody in <laughs> hockey. So That's why he was the number one player. He just killed everyone else on the other team. <laughs> around seventh grade, his woodshop teacher told him that he should try out for the wrestling team. He did, and Mike said the first time he grabbed someone and threw him across the room, he was all in. Seems like a guy that would take advice from a woodshop teacher. <laughs> like, like if you were telling me that like, hey, my shop teacher told me to th- do this and this is why I am what I am. Yeah, just looking at the type of individual he is, it looks like he's like, you know what? My shop teacher had some solid career advice. <laughs> you mean the shop teacher that's like, hey, I have five pieces of advice for you. Holds up a, f- <laughs> a hand missing a finger. <laughs> Congratulations on a visual bit on an audio podcast, Tyler. Uh, really? That joke was for us. As you hold up four fingers and pulling one down as if it was sawed off. That's how you do the bit. You got to describe it because describing the joke makes it funnier, as we all know, as being comedians. Heading into high school as a 310-pound freshman, <laughs> Mike, play- <laughs> Mike played football and golf, but his main thing was wrestling, and Nebraska is kind of a wrestling state the same way Iowa is, right? God damn right it is. You don't, you don't hear a lot from the Nebraska. Usually what ends up happening is Nebraska's got to lure some Iowa guys over to make <laughs> their collegiate wrestling programs a little bit better. And of course, you know, if some Nebraska high school student wants to try out for Division Three Iowa schools in the Iowa Conference, which is one of the best conferences for wrestling. If they want to try out, maybe they'll make the team. Mike won two state championships and was actually considered for the 86 U.S. Olympic team, so he's like a for-real world-class amateur wrestler. However, Mike wanted to be a real wrestler, a pro wrestler, and he just happened to live in the same area of Omaha as Matt Dogfishan. He'd see him around town from time to time, and Mike's dad was a mailman, so he kind of knew everyone around town. One day, as a kid, maybe 10 or 11, Mike and his dad were playing pool at this bar, pool hall kind of place, and Matt Dog walked in. Mike is terrified because Matt Dog is a batshit crazy hill, but of course his dad is like, hey, Maurice, and they just kind of hang out. So then Matt Dog Vachon exposes the business by giving these two marks a couple of tickets to an upcoming AWA show. At that show, Matt Dog took Mike behind the curtain. He got to meet Andre the Giant, and he said, at this point, he was going to be a wrestler. Matt Dog told him, go to school, get your education, and when you're done with college, come talk to me, which is not hill advice. Smoke crack, disobey your parents, drop out now. These old timers never kept kayfabe, I swear to God. Mike kind of listened to Mad Dog. He finished high school, but he actually turned down a full-ride wrestling scholarship to the University of Oklahoma to go play two years of semi-pro football. Go Sooners. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of (laughs) in my entire life. Because Oklahoma had a good wrestling program. Like, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State was, like, right up there with Iowa, Iowa State, and all, all of those schools. But also, too, if you went to Oklahoma as an amateur wrestler, Jim Ross is going to sign you <laughs> sight unseen. If you wanted to be in pro wrestling, you go to Oklahoma to wrestle. Jim Ross or Gerald Briscoe 
is going to see you wrestle and then offer you a contract at the mere sight of you, the mere second you go, I'm kind of thinking about being a wrestler. That's part of the reason why I was so focused on becoming a really good shot putter because I wanted Jim Ross to acknowledge my amateur accomplishments on commentary someday. That's why Cole Cabana played football in Western Michigan. But Oklahoma wrestling, it doesn't get more fucking direct than that. Once semi-pro football didn't work out as it often does not, it was off to pro wrestling, and at the age of 21, Mike cashed in on Matt Dog's offer to help him get into the business. Vashon originally sent him over to Eddie Sharkey, famous trainer of Rick Rude, Road Warriors, etc., etc., and Mike started training there. We're in 89, 90-ish, and some of these marky-ass old-timers still want the newbies to earn getting smartened up. So they weren't like, this shit is fake. Here's how you throw a working punch. You know, most trainers were still like slowly working you in with like shoot holds. So Eddie was basically teaching Mike amateur wrestling. And Mike is a world-class amateur wrestler. So he felt like he was wasting his time. And he went back to Vashon to get hooked up with someone else. So take two was sending Mike to Florida to get trained by Larry Simon. And if you watched the Plan B shoot, you know that is none other than Dean's dad, Boris Malenko. The six foot, 400 pound, by God, blue chipper, almost from the University of Oklahoma, spent the next 10 months or so wrestling around in Tampa, Florida with the Malenko family. And he had a really awesome setup because he actually had a financial backer pay for his training and living expenses. So all he had to do was go down there and learn. How did he get this financial backer? Did he have to show his wanger? That's because <laughs> I, I feel like that was involved. He's hung like a mantar. <laughs> I mean, he is half man, half tar. And there is a sub segment of wrestling fans that really enjoy that. And it is, it is interesting. Like it is, it is most certainly interesting. Like, and there are always guys on Facebook that just have a profile picture that is just a picture of them in trunks, but it's just cut off from the waist down to the mid thigh. And it's, that's basically their profile picture. Raging erection. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, to each his own, everybody's a consensual adult, but uh, I've had many, many of men proposition me and then get very upset when I'm like, no, man, I'm good. And then they proceed to berate me. And then I'm like, all right, fine. You can buy my trunks, but it's this price. And they're like, okay, cool. But uh, for another $20, will you jizz in them? Which is like very... <laughs> Your jizz is worth more than that, Jake. Exactly. I have Olympians in my family. I have Olympic DNA. And you are only giving me $20 to jizz in a pair of tights that I wore when I wrestled Bill DeMont. Like, what is, what is even <laughs> happening here? What is going on? So what'd yeah. you do with that 20 bucks? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> After getting all trained up, Mike was having a Warriors L at the bar when this dude was there and he was just staring at him. The guy ended up being Johnny New brother of WCW's PN News knew. Johnny was staring Mike down because for a second he thought it was Paul because they look really close. Obviously not in his Minotaur phase, but if you see a picture of young Mike and PN News, it's like spot on. But they're actually not related whatsoever, despite that rumor kind of going around. I mean, he's adopted, so I he's guess adopted, it's not like impossible, yeah. but no hard evidence supports it. 
Let's start that conspiracy theory. What are we doing here? We we need to up the listens and up the downloads, Nicholas. Why didn't we do an investigation on whether or not PM News and Mantar are they brothers? Like well, that should be the title of this. We should we should put the word murder somewhere in this show. <laughs> Ten Bell Pop murder, and already we're gonna get the listens up. I we gotta think about viewership here, okay? We're on season four for Christ's sakes. Come on, Nicholas. Mike thought Johnny was going to try to fight him uh, or something because he was just like staring him down. But they ended up just talking and it comes out that these two wrestlers were a person removed from each other. That eventually led to Mike meeting Paul, PN. And PN News knew Otto Vance. Paul told him to send over some promo pictures and tell him, you've been wrestling for two years. That's like the most important part. And this leads to one of the most batshit crazy debut stories. Mike being a big son bitch, and you know, with quote unquote two years of wrestling under him, was immediately put into the main event, literally his first match, November 11th, 91, in Germany's catch wrestling in front of 10,000 people being paid $6,000 and getting a world title shot, albeit losing, to Rambo. I'm fucking mad. I know, I know you would be. <laughs> fucking... Like, not that, the, that, that he was able to do this. Like, I, like, good for him. I'm just mad that this experience isn't around anymore. The, the Otto Vons CWA thing where you could go over and go to Germany for three months and just wrestle every single day and live in a caravan, and then your job is to wrestle every day in these tournaments. And, and you hear about so many people doing them, like Rip Rogers was, was over there doing them. Scott Hall used to do them before Razor Ramon. William Regal. Fit Finley would be over there. Liger went over there. Kenzuke Sasaki. And getting to wrestle like people like that, just living in a trailer three months at a time and getting paid thousands of dollars. Man, I, I just, I wish opportunities like that were available to people of my generation. Like you almost had to be the best of the best to get a point where you could stay at the Dragon Gate Dojo to be over in England for like a month or two on a little tour where like just like two years experience here's some pictures come on over I think I either heard about like Hero or Danielson doing it but uh, by the time they got over there it was so like fizzled out and not what it, it used those to be are the, those are the Butlin ones, Butlins, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I missed out on those but I, I there was discussion of it I should have done it I kicked myself that I never did because the Chase guy Chase you Bavaro he was over there and he goes, man, Brian Dixon loves Germans. And I have the most German last name ever. And he was like, if you just take some pictures of you with a German flag and trunks, he would just be so infatuated, like <laughs> having a wrestling German. And I just, I, I never got to a point where I did it. And I had so much going on at the time, like in the States, like that was when I was like booked like every weekend, like as a man scout. And it was kind of moving some places. But like he always said, if you just take those pictures like with a German flag and or had trunks with like a German flag on it and with your last name Fierbach, like he probably would have brought you over. You jizz on that German flag. You're getting over there for sure. <laughs> oh, extra 20 bucks for sure. Extra 20 bucks for sure. With Fierbach, you would have like debuted in the main event, made $6,000. That would have been like <laughs> been good shit. Exactly. Back to back to the gentleman we're talking to right now, as opposed to lamenting about my failed wrestling career. <laughs> Continue. So Otto is not dumb. He saw Mike wrestle and immediately was like, "Okay, kid, how long have you been wrestling?" 
And Mike was like, I had a couple matches in training and, you know, this one. Otto could have done the pro wrestling thing and murdered him on the spot. But instead, he was like, okay, you did an okay job. If you actually want to learn this business, you're in the next tournament, 38 dates, $335 a day. And just like that, Mike was it. Mike is obviously using a fake name here to disguise his true identity of Mantar. So he wrestled as Bruiser Mastino, which ended up being kind of like this uh, mafia gangster gimmick. He wore a suit and a fedora down to the ring, my lady. And he carried a violin case with him, which in gangster movie lore means he had a gun. As we touched on, catch wrestling, the whole tournament, matches with rounds, very 1900s as far as traveling in the caravan, sometimes literally working in a circus tent, and they're doing more of a MMA style. Seems to be a, a blip on a lot of guys' radar. It, it seems like everyone loved it. Like, Otto liked to hang on to his belt, but you don't hear stories about him dicking guys over, screwing them on payoffs, and he was apparently like a wrestling god over there. I mean, yeah, he he ran these shows, and obviously it's kind of like the good brother system. And obviously, like, guys would come over and wrestle for him. I mean, and he got an AWA world title out of it, much in the same sense that Giant Baba got an NWA world title run out of it. Like, these promoters that take care of people overseas, you know, when they come over to the States, they give them a little bit of a shine. Also, there's that sense of, like, oh, he's from a different country. He's special, or he's good, or, or whatever. There's some sort of shine over somebody like that especially in the States, this idea of someone from a, across the seas, uh, a foreigner of some sort, like is coming here, like you're like, oh, this guy's, you know, one of the best in Germany. And little did I know that there's far better people there, but he's just the only one here. Obviously, everybody talks very highly of him. And like I said, there's some really great matches on there, like Tit Finley versus Eddie Gilbert. You're like, how does that match work? But with the round system, there's this story you can tell. And if you have guys that are very smart psychology-wise, they can structure an, a very interesting match once you kind of figure out the, the whole gimmick of it all and really do some amazing matches. And yeah, everybody, everybody loved working for him and well-liked. And since he had all that credibility in America and comes back over to Germany, now he's that much bigger of a star than he already was to begin with. So he's able to go to these carnivals, go to these places and be like, hey, I have wrestlers across the world that are going to come in and wrestle. Probably a hustler in his own right, a carny in his own right, but a successful businessman. And that's why he was able to take care of people and not dick them over. From here, Bruiser Mastino starts working and learning from pretty impressive names. You have English wrestling great Tony St. Clair, Fit Finley, Owen Hart, He Who Shall Not Be Named, William Regal, and I'm sure tons of legendary German wrestlers who we don't know about because we were on the correct side of the war. And Mike is super over. As a hill, he's wildly popular. It's just in Germany. And here, we didn't really acknowledge other countries and barely do now. This version of Mike obviously had quite a different style from Mantar, but he was like more than capable in the ring and did well as like a big bruising monster hill. I kind of equate it to Arbitus Sabonis in the NBA. Like he was solid here, but back in the Shire, wherever the fuck he was from, he was like the GOAT. There's a, a match of him against Tony Sinclair on Eurosport on YouTube. I have it open in another tab right now. And the dude's moving so yeah. fucking fast for how big he is. And um, you see him slow down a little bit later in his career, and I'm wondering if that's because he's going so hard this early with his size. Yeah, and every fucking day in Germany. Like, they mm -hmm. never stopped wrestling. 
Mike told one of the craziest stories about fans I've ever heard in the CWA. So with the old-timey MMA style, it was a little easier to trick people, and the German fans really believed or at least wanted to. So anytime a wrestler cheated in a match or maybe bumped the ref, they would announce over the PA that the wrestler was going to be fined an amount that usually equaled about $100 USD. Fans of that wrestler would often rush to the ring and pay the fine with real money. So, of course, the wrestlers caught on to this and started working the marks. They'd toss in a few fine spots, and the two wrestlers, the ref and the PA, would just split the money at the end of the night. And Mike said if you were in, like, a big championship match, you could make, like, an extra six, $700 just off doing this. Oh, that's good shit. That's really, <laughs> that's great business acumen. <laughs> So it didn't look like Bruiser had any like big, long feuds. I don't think Catch was really like set up that way. He didn't win any belts, but he did work steady, and again, almost every day, from 91 to 94. But it was in Germany that Mike met fellow Omaha brethren, Ted DiBiase. He told Mike that he had some athletic ability. Vince loves big guys. He'll see what strings he can pull. Mike gave WWF some calls, and between Germany shots while home on Christmas, he got a call back and eventually was signed. It was a big deal because most people have to do tryout matches for WWF. Not many are just signed, but Mike had, you know, the tapes and the reputation from Germany, and that's all they needed to put him under contract. Halleck wrestled his first two matches as Bruiser Mastino, defeating Nikolai Volkov August 25th and 26th, 94 at house shows. But then, Mike realized why he was sent back to the future. That'll be two shillings, me lord. Alright then, who's next? Bruiser Mastino. Oi, do I know you? We are the remnants of the Territory Kingdoms. We have traveled from afar to ancient Florida to seek your help. What? How could I assist you, gents? We seek your hand in defeating the evil chaos wizard Vincent the Terrible, freeing our people for the honor and memory of the NWA. We bring the offering of the Sword of Crockett, the only weapon mighty enough to pierce the nefarious sorcerer's cold heart. You are the only warrior mighty enough to wield it. Oh, governor, I am but a humble shopkeep, isn't it? Your everyday commoner, with a head of a cow. I believe you got the wrong guy you have. Nay, an oracle spoke of a man born unto us with a bovine head. We have brought unto you the sacred box of gimmicks. Gaze into its power, and witness the glory of your foreordination. Oh, give it a go, I reckon. What are the chances they made him a cow because he's from Omaha? 
Like I looked it up, and Omaha Steaks has been around since 1917. I could believe that with Vince. Like, oh, <laughs> Omaha, I get good steaks from there. You're built <laughs> like a bull. Oh, you're a mentor. <laughs> Before we got on air, we were talking about Kazarni. I mean, all Nick had to do, Sinbodi had to do, is mention like, oh yeah, I do carnival stunts. Carnival Kazarni, that's your name. <laughs> like those weird introductory Vince McMahon meetings, like. I was fucking born to be in one of those, and it was a shame yeah, I never yeah. was. Because you know what I would have done? Vince was like, tell me a little about yourself so we can get an idea what character you should have. I was an Eagle Scout. I was an Eagle <laughs> Scout. I was a Boy Scout. I mean, scouting's all I was about. And then, of course, you're like, hmm, Iowa. You're a farmer. Get some overalls <laughs> on. <laughs> like, I, was, I was born to, to sit in that meeting and say I was an Eagle Scout, and Vince be like, you're a filthy Boy Scout. Yes, that's what I want. You and Beaver Cleavage, the wholesome team, but you're really dirty motherfuckers. That's what you are. I was born for that, and I never got that opportunity. But I went ahead and did it to myself, which might have been career suicide. I don't know. <laughs> Boy Scouts, camping, forest. You're going to be a tree. <laughs> <laughs> a tree. Just like in that Wizard of Oz movie. You know, the moving trees. So Mantar's TV debut is a little fuzzy, and the way they pre-filmed shit and released it makes it a little worse. Okay. You have a match filmed December 13th, 94 for Wrestling Challenge, beating Buck Quartermain, airing January 5th, 95. The next day, December 14th, 94, he demolished Walter Slow for a Superstars taping, I believe that aired January 7th. In this match, the ring announcer accidentally calls him the Minotaur, and Vince covers by saying, What do they call him? Mentor? It's just so, so smooth. The wrestling challenge commentators, Gorilla Monsoon and Ted DiBiase, sell it like this is Mantar's debut. Superstars commentators, Vince and Jerry Lawler, sell it like it's his debut. Obviously, chronologically, it's Buck, but WWE has a video listing up that says Walter Slow is his debut. So which is it, Vince? Who'd you pay off this time? The fact that you're even getting slightly comically, like, fake mad about it. There are people <laughs> that are actually mad about little shit like that. Shane Hagedorn, who I work with in the merch department, also is a part of the writing crew, and he's in charge of the results and the rankings and match results. He's done that for Ring of Honor as well, too, over the years. And sometimes those TV tapings, there are things like that where they overlap, where this match happened before this happened. And he gets so frustrated about it and seeing fans online get frustrated about it. There's a part of me that's supposed to go, who gives a fuck? Like, <laughs> but there are people that are like, well, this happened on this dark taping that actually aired before this happened. But then, of course, we all know like, well, this happened because this guy's flight got delayed. So he had to wrestle this one on the next day's taping as opposed to this day's taping. But it was a part of this episode, which was recorded the day before those things. And, and especially when you put title switches in that. With superstars and WCW Saturday Night, it gets all fucking weird. Listen to Hagedorn talk about, like, we don't know how long this this team held the tag team titles because, in essence, it was only a few hours, but really it was, like, 10 days. And like, <laughs> I'm just like, man, I got more important to worry about. <laughs> but he's right in being overly, like, analytical about it because fans are overly analytical like that yeah. and all you need is Meltzer to be like well actually they only held the title for 10 hours instead of 20 days that was that was actually incorrect for them to say that and that's that, that's wrong they're like what do you want us to do say they held the title for 10 hours like you stupid motherfucker <laughs> also too why don't you clean up your fucking office you fucking heathen? <laughs> 
By the way, let, <laughs> let me just say this right now. If you're not enjoying this season, it has been full of fucking rants because slowly <laughs> over time recording this podcast, I have given less fucks as we've gotten. And, and season four has been full of fucking rants and shitty fucking comments. Hit the subscribe button. Let people know what's going on here. I am losing my goddamn fucking mind and you're enjoying it. So no matter when it started, the mighty Mantar had been unleashed on the WWF. He was billed as half man, half minotaur. But a minotaur is mostly man with the head and the tail of a cow or whatever. So I'm going to say 66 and two thirds percent man. So you take that 50% man, you add that 66, two third percent man, plus another 25% man because Kurt Angle knows he can't beat me and he's not even going to try. You got 141 and two third percent man with the head of a cow. Slow clap, slow clap. <laughs> just right. You worked it in, um, but I, I, you got to put it with. It goes. Listen, I know cows. I'm from Iowa. Like, <laughs> like. All right. So with Tyler here, what what do you think of this gimmick of the Mantar gimmick? Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> well, don't hold back. Don't hold back. This is some of the dumbest shit I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I love wrestling so much, but it's so frustrating to see people not given the tools to succeed. And it's almost like sometimes they're actively handicapped just as a, an experiment from Vince to be like, yeah, you think you're good? I'm going to put a fucking bullhead on you and see if you can get over <laughs> that. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. Not just that. That could be too intimidating. I want you to moo like a cat. <laughs> I want you to act like the fucking farm animal I see you as. And, man, he's a scary dude, but it's such a goofy look. The way the mask, like, kind of slumped forward because it was Mm top-heavy made it look like a cow that was like, oh, man, I need a fucking cigarette. (laughs) Like, Like a cow that was just fucking over it. I've seen cows like that. My my dad was a cattle farmer. I've seen cows are like, ugh, I really gotta fucking do this shit. All right, let's go. And it's supposed to so like bulls, like when they're they're raz, they're they're pretty quick and like able to buck and gore someone. But he he kind of moved like very not slow, but like very methodical. Yeah, and like not really a bull. He he would not come across as a bull in a china shop. He would come across as like more like a, a rhino in a way. Uh, okay. Yeah, where it's like he's a strong, sturdy guy that's going to fuck that thing up, but he's not going to turn on a dime, you know what I mean? Is it even a cow head? A bull, ox? I, I, don't, I don't know. I debate. It almost yeah. looks like a bison head. Yeah, yeah I, think it, bison, I, I, think, I think it's a bison head. Because what, what's the other thing? Like bison, buffalo. Buffalo, is like the yeah. other thing. But it's more of a bison. My girlfriend gets so fucking mad at me, like, when she's like, oh, it's actually a bison instead of a buffalo. And like, I don't know. I can't remember what the fucking difference is. And I, I don't give a fuck. Nor do I give a fuck. Did they, these guys hold the Ring of Honor tag titles for 10 hours or 20 days? I don't give a fuck. All right. So let's get into this cowhead. Mike could have been exaggerating, but he said that the head was $100,000. A uh, hundred thousand and twenty, if you would have jizzed on it. And he said it was supposed to rival Vader's headgear, which if you remember how cool that is. This uh, cow bison head was supposed to shoot out smoke and flames and have glowing <laughs> red eyes. But instead, they made what they fucking made, and it was not as cool as Vader's headset. Well, Vader's headset is not 
damn near the size of his body. Yeah, <laughs> it went down to like his waist, didn't it? Yeah. The cow thing with the skin and everything, it goes to about his torso. Vader's shit sits right on his shoulders. Yeah. And it, it's like an accessory. This is a burden to this man. <laughs> when you were like 12, this shit's cool. <laughs> I'm sure Tyler is a fucking 20-year-old when he first watched it. Whatever age you are right now, Tyler, subtract two weeks. That's, okay. when, you, <laughs> that's, that's when you ran into Mantar. I, I could see how you'd be silly, but we have a goddamn wrestling dinosaur on TNT and TBS, and nobody questions that. Yeah, but he doesn't Nobody walk around that. real slow so he doesn't trip on anything because the mask is too <laughs> poorly made. Why can't we hold Mantar in the same regard, is, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, He's the luchasaurus of our time! Mike also thought it looked dumb. Everyone in the back thought it looked dumb, and that led to him with the whole shaving his head in the shape of like a ram horn and the eye makeup. But in traditional early mid 90s fashion, Mantar started running through job guys to get over, and had it not been for the laws of the land, he would have slaughtered them all. Armed with a methodical bovine based moveset of charges and splashes, Mike made his raw debut January 9th, 95, airing January 16th, and William Shatner is there. Admiral James T. Kirk and Mantar could have had interaction. What a time to be alive. Hold on. This particular raw was the first wrestling program I had seen in years at the time. Because being a poor kid in Iowa, having to rely on television that was brought in by an antenna. So much, in fact, that when a rainstorm happened, we wouldn't have any TV. And then it was syndicated, so sometimes it would be on TV and sometimes it wouldn't. So I would beg to stay home from church because if I went to church, I would miss WWF Superstars because it was only on Sunday at 10 a.m. And so like, we, if we just went to Sunday school, I could get home just in time to see the last 45 minutes of it. But if we stayed for church, I fucking missed it. And then they just stopped airing it on the ABC affiliate. And then we finally got DirecTV. And when we got DirecTV, like, I was so out of wrestling for a while. And then all of a sudden, I fucking see Monday Night Raw. And I see Bret Hart, who was in one of the last matches I saw when it was on ABC. WWF Superstars, oh, I remember him. I liked him as a child, and he's wrestling Jeff Jarrett with William fucking Shatner <laughs> out there. And I was like, holy fuck, wrestling's on? And you could check the guide or DirecTV. Holy shit, it's on every Monday? Holy shit, I am watching wrestling every single day on Monday. So this particular episode was my reintroduction, my reinvigoration of love of professional wrestling. So... Very apropos that Mantar is on this particular episode. If you guys will notice, I put a little image behind me. This is from his Superstars debut against Aaron Slow. They cut to the audience for just a moment as he's taking the bull head off. And I'm just going to move away for a second so you can see this guy's face. <laughs> he has a look of, oh, that's what he looks like. Yeah, it's that's the look on his face. Oh, I wouldn't expect that. I was expecting him to be uglier, but all right, cool, all right. <laughs> It's really the embodiment of somebody going, huh. <laughs> I mean, that's the embodiment of 1995 WWF, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> huh. I not expect that. William Shatner's here. I mean, I'm about him. All right. I mean, he's here to promote Tech Wars, which is on just after Raw at 9 p.m. Central Standard Time. So that or Silk Stockings. Brett. Screw Brett. Is that Shatner? Yeah, I mean, I, I had to think about it for a second, but yeah, that is it. 
with Mantar's raw debut, he beat Jason Arndt, who you may know. Oh, Joey Ebbs from Omega. Definitely. Oh. Man, that's so weird. I sat in that guy's living room and, and interviewed him for the Omega documentary. Once again, things, if you, if, like, I just came in on the main event of this particular, like, Raw, holy shit. Like, this whole, I work with Jeff Jarrett now, so, like, I've got to find this Raw debut episode and put it on a DVD or keep it running on a loop in my fucking house at all moments of time. Because this is, this is so weird. If I could go back in time and talk to myself as a child, it would probably be on this day, this particular episode saying that guy right there you're going to be in his living room filming a documentary that guy right there he's going to hit you in the back of the head on live television (laughs) (laughs) that guy right there is going to say you had a good match that would be just the weirdest thing ever another fun little fact uh jason arndt also took the first stunner if this youtube video is to be believed so another little fun fact for this Raw is uh, Mantar is obviously from ancient times, so naturally he's going to have a tough time navigating the hip and cool 1990s. There's fax machines, beepers, impelling someone with your long sword is a felony now. And this led to him seeking management, and in stepped a man who has only been involved in 100% serious and believable wrestling, Jim Cornette. It's really good that they got someone who has such a good view and understanding of modern day America in the 90s. The man who's been living in the fucking Smoky Mountains for ever how long. Who's been like, I just want things to be the way they used to be. All these beepers and fax machines and the world is moving too fast. I need old Johnson City, Tennessee to comfort me. All right, man, Tard, listen, this is what you need to know. The combo's actually a better deal because you're getting more food overall. <laughs> Yeah, you think Jim Cornette and his Wendy's and, and a cow would be, like, natural enemies. That's why I like Brian Danielson, motherfucker. He's got that move called cattle mutilation. That's what I do every time I go to Wendy's. It's a cattle mutilation. <laughs> Mantar, Moot Down, thank you. Ben Jordan and Gary Scott on Superstars and Wrestling Challenge. He got a quality TV win over a rostered opponent, Aldo Montoya, January 11th, for WWF Action Zone. And this entire run, Mantar is like being hyped up as this force to be reckoned with in the 95 Royal Rumble. And there is where the mighty Mantar would make his pay-per-view debut. Pamela Anderson is there. So the overlap in Mantar and the Baywatch universes, uh, they're there. What have I told you about speaking with your head inserted entirely in my ass? Sorry, master, but my students, they speak of a powerful minotaur warrior, the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. What shall we do if he were to take up arms against you, my greatness? I do not bore myself with such childish fairy tales. But if this pathetic Mantar dare challenge me, I will rain carnage upon him and keep his head melted on my wall, and then pay off the Whitehall Township Police Department to just pretend it never happened. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. 
Mantar entered the Rumble at 20th. He got no eliminations, but he did last nine and a half minutes before getting chunked out by Lex Luger. Then we get to the match that would impact Mike's future in the company. A February 21st taping of Superstars versus Razor Ramon. So Mantar faced Razor in his first match back from rehab. Before he went in, he had dropped the belt to Double J, which will come into play when the roadie comes down to distract Razor. Mantar charges him. Razor moves out of the way. Mantar goes over the top and hits Road Dog on the outside and gets counted out for his first ever loss. There's a whole story behind this match, though, which seems a little blown up and exaggerated. Spot early in the match where Mantar is shoving Scott into the turnbuckle over and over. Razor comes out of the corner and slaps Mantar. It could have also been something they that didn't make air because they heavily edited these matches. This seems to be it. When I watched it, like nothing looked too crazy, but either Mantar shoved Scott a little too hard or Scott was trying to take the piss out of him, but Razor slaps Mike a little too hard at some point. They finish up the match, everything looks normal, but apparently Mike is fuming. This leads to a backstage scuffle, but worst of all, Mantar had just crossed the click and his days were numbered. Click apologist. Man Scout Jake Manning. I mean, it's kind of one of those instances like, if you're a big guy and you can't wrestle Razor Ramon, like, I mean, he's very new. He, and he's also got to he also got to be smart enough to realize don't fuck with the click, but you fuck with the click and here you are. So much as I've stuck up for Mantar, I've, I've got I've got to make apologies for the click like I do. Me, me and Justin Credible, that's that's our penance. That's <laughs> that's what our job is. Did you see this? Like, does it look stiff to you? Because obviously I don't fucking know, but... I don't know. Razor, Razor was always, like, such a fucking pro. It was always tough to tell. Like, it looked yeah. like he might have clobbered him, but, but, like, Razor's too fucking good for you to even fucking tell if he's stiff or not. Yeah, that makes sense. With that slap, too, like, the way he turns away from it, it didn't seem, like, that bad. It wasn't like he was caught yeah, off guard like, and actually nothing, hurt. Yeah, yeah. For the next month, he popped onto TV to beat a job guy, but he was having a long house show run with Duke Drozzi, mostly taking losses. April 24th, Mantar was back on Raw to beat Sonny Rogers, which that's fun. The 26th on Action Zone, he lost to Bret Hart, who rolled him up after an accidental run-in to manager Cornette. And apparently, also, little controversy over this match because Bret and Mantar had, like, burned the house down. But they ended up editing out like some of the best parts of the match, which pissed off Brett. And if you watch this match, it's on YouTube. The crowd is like really, really up for it. And you know what? Like, I've always been a Sean guy, but I was also a Brett guy. It was right up until when I read Brett's book and I read what he feels about himself. And that's why I got turned off by him. But if I can separate the art from the artist for a second, like <laughs> his art during like this run, the time where he had just lost the belt and before he won the belt back from diesel at survivor series that time in between there brett was so undefeated as a wrestler unfucking believable and consistently having great fucking matches now sean was too he was having he was having great matches but he was wrestling a lot of top tier talent and put in the main event spot and you know had a lot of main event angles but brett was having amazing fucking matches with a fucking pirate he was having amazing matches with mantar and i feel like brett was doing it to kind of prove like i can have a great match with fucking anybody and i like this era of brett so fucking much because he just let his work speak for unfortunately now in retirement brett can't do that anymore and him speaking for himself really 
whatever energy he used to put into putting his matches together, he does that in being very bitter to me <laughs> and angry and proving to everybody that I'm the best there is, the best there ever will be, as opposed to just being it. This is the time where he's being it and you can fucking see it. And that energy now is replaced with words as opposed to action. But when he was taking that energy inside of him to prove that he was the best and he was doing that with action, he was one of the fucking best. And he, this, was, this was prime Breton, in my opinion. These matches should be studied by everybody joining a fucking wrestling school. Anybody who's a fan, they were some of the fucking best. The new generation era, while everyone loves to hate on it, but the actual wrestling is far better than the Attitude Era. Like you have Brett on fire, Sean on fire, Owen, one, two, three kid, Razor, fucking Candido comes in, Barry Horowitz. Like the matches are good. I mean, don't forget, like, you got Hakushi knocking yeah. around, the, the Smoking Guns as a tag team as well, too. You can't, you can't sleep on Bob Holly having some classic fucking matches as well, too. Um, talking about Sparkplug. Yeah, I'm talking <laughs> about Sparkplug. Sparkplug has some good fucking matches on, on Action Zone, man. They were, they were always fun. But yeah, the Smoking Guns with the tag stuff they were doing, like, this was fucking great. What, a, what an era. Bulldog. Yeah. Anything the Bulldog did at this time. That new generation era. Yeah, the wrestling in it is so good. Also, you're getting like the Hardy Boys as job guys, and they're, yeah. they're, giving, they're giving a little bit, you know? And then you get these job guys that are territorial wrestlers that are actually pretty good hands. So you're getting job matches that are really good and not guys that are bags of shit like you would see during like the NWA Crockett era, where basically Mike Jackson would pick up some guy at a fucking gas station, put a singlet on him, and then put him out there with the Midnight Express. These were actually guys that were wrestling. They would do WWF television during the week, and then they would be doing three shows on the weekend in Kings Mountain and Shelby and Gaffney over the weekend. They'd be doing three shots, so they'd be wrestling five days out of the week. So, yeah, I mean, this was wrestling was really good. Like I said, you had that whole mega crew up there doing jobs. You had Karina doing jobs. And got to put some respect in Aldo Montoya's name as well, too. With this shameful defeat to a Canadian, Mantar's confidence was shaken. The next Raw, he dropped a match against angry race car man Bob Holly. He lost a lot of house shows to Man Mountain Rock, part man, part mountain, all rock. Then as part of Camp Cornet, he teamed up with the good Pritchard, Tom, to lose to Techno Team 2000. He does not consider him an official part of Camp Cornet. Wow. Yeah, the disrespect. What a dick. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, Cornette knows a lot about wrestling, but he seemed to not know anything about Mike's career outside of being Mantar, from what I heard. If he saw him wrestle over in Germany, doing some real motherfucking work and making it look fucking real, no flips, like he would have been on board. You know, we're giving Mike a lot of credit here. We're trying to give him as much leeway as possible before getting stuck with Mantar, but (laughs) maybe he was just a crotchety asshole. Maybe he's just one of those big guys that was kind of fucking lazy. Maybe he had a bad attitude. I don't know. You know, you look at someone like Glenn Jacobs. The boys fucking liked him, and he had like a couple bad gimmicks, but they kept trying to find a way for him to keep getting on television because people liked him. Same with Al Snow. He was Leaf Cassidy, and like, let's try and find a way to Bring him back in here some way, somehow. Like, it feels like if you were a solid dude, they'd find a way to work you back in. And we're giving, you know, Mike a lot of credit as being a nice guy. I mean, 
that doesn't always help. But sometimes it's like you don't want to be a kiss ass. But maybe maybe he just he just wasn't one of the boys. Which trust me, I I think that's something I struggle with. Like I'm not a guy that hangs out after the show because I'm usually working until after the show's over. During the show, I'm always working, so I don't get to hang out with anybody. Like a lot of my friends work for AW, but I don't have conversations with them because they're worrying about the things they need to worry about and being on TV. I'm worrying about how many T-shirts we have at the stand and. Like, I just worry about doing my job properly, where if I hung out with everybody, maybe I'd get further in my career. Maybe if I hung out in the fucking weed smoking circle, people would be, you know, be like, ah, I'm going to introduce them to Jake or do that. And trust me, people have gotten opportunities by doing that and just hanging out. Jake, I'm so sorry. The yeah. meat smoking circle? Is that where everyone, sm- they, they suck weed, each other's weed smoking. dicks? Is that no, what you're getting? No. Uh, I said, yeah, I, I heard meat smoking too. <laughs> I don't oh, know you said meat smoking? I, yeah. well, listen, meat smoking circle? That's that's an interesting circle to be a part of too. <laughs> I thought- Everybody's over there sucking their dicks. Dude, that's what I thought it was. I'm like, yeah, that's politics. That's, that's, yeah. Yeah, 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 that's, like, that's what I took it. I mean, you got to like a guy if you're going to let him suck your dick. So... <laughs> Yeah, that's where I fell down. I, was, I didn't give enough blowjobs. That's really where my career just fell apart. But no, weed so- smoking. Sort of weed smoking. I got gotcha. you. Okay. Weed smoking. But yeah, I don't know. Like I said, if I hung out a little bit more and been one of the boys and been more friendly, I, I don't think either of you who are my friends would describe me as friendly. No. So uh, <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for the quick no uh, to confirm. Maybe Mike was just one of those guys, but maybe he was a good dude. He just wasn't personable. and. Unfortunately, you have to be very personable. You have to be very outgoing. You have to be a little pushy about yourself. You know, you have to believe in yourself a lot. And if you're not like that, you know, things don't happen for you. I don't know. I wasn't in those locker rooms. Then we get to Mantar's final match of this run, losing to Bam Bam Bigelow, June 6, 95 for Superstars. And this match is just two big meaty men slapping meat. It has the coolest fucking spot in it. Bam Bam. 6'4", almost 400 pounds, does the fucking Ric Flair run to the corner, flip over, run across the apron, turnbuckle shtick, and then hits his diving headbutt on Mike for the win. It's just insane to see a human being that big do that spot. Mike's last appearance of this run would be as a lumberjack in a lumberjack match between Sid and Diesel at In Your House 2. And if you want like a snapshot, of 95 WWF, uh, just to name a few, you obviously have Mantar. Diesel is in the ring, who has a Transformers gimmick of an 18-wheeler that morphs into a shitty wrestler. Shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> Shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> Capable fucking wrestler who draws money. That was really good. Uh, I am one person removed from him in two different ways, so I've, I felt very nervous about saying that. You should um, be. You fucking should be. You should be. You cut it out of this fucking episode. <laughs> Hey, Um, Nick, no, he's not going to get upset because he knows there are only two things real in this business, and that's the miles and the money. Tyler's favorite (laughs) fucking line in the world. I do enjoy it quite a bit. You probably probably say that when you're fucking doing touring gigs. Oh, yeah, I've got it tattooed on my back shoulder. That's it. When when you have some, like, opener that's like, well, uh, what are your credits? How do you want me to introduce for you? And be like, look, kid. The only thing that's real <laughs> are the money and the miles. <laughs> I don't give a fuck how you introduce me. 
You also have uh, Taxman, IRS, Rapist Jimmy Del Rey, Grunge Rocker, Rad Radford, Rikishi, and his hard-hitting positive vibes from the streets gimmick that lasted like 30 seconds. Tatanka, who is at least not Italian. Cowboys Billy Bart, Hillbilly, Henry Godwin, and Garbage Man, Duke the Dumpster Drossy, which is the closest any wrestler has ever come to being in a union, as the sanitation workers are one of the strongest legs of the Teamsters. Master, my students. The report that the Mantar is making his way to face you. Good. Mantar will bend the knee and live as my slave, like every territory hero before him, or he will die. I mean, probably both. We don't give our slaves health insurance, and they have to cope with a demanding schedule with just a shit ton of pills. But hey, I'm making money, and that's all that matters. Mantar, fueled by the wisdom of the box of gimmicks and armed with the sword of Crockett, made his way to Sportus Entertainicus, where he was met at the city walls by the vile sorcerer himself. Is it the terrible? You face the mighty Mantar. This pathetic act of valor will be your last. Army of Undead Gimmicks, arise! From the portal to the realm of the undead stepped a horde of monsters one by one. Garbage Man! Angry Race Car Driver! Aldo Montoya! Hi guys! Brawler of Brooklyn! Hey, I'm a fucking zombie over here! Gobbly! Though, the multi-universe apocalypse begins here. Attack! As blood soaked the sovereign grounds of Sportus Entertainicus, the Mantar fought bravely, but he was vastly outnumbered. As the surviving zombie gimmick surrounded Mantar, hope was lost. Then, from the sky, came a savior from an ancient civilization in the future. An intergalactic warrior traveling through space and time, armed with a laser blaster and flying on a hoverboard fueled by nuclear solar fusion.
Now, it looks like they just jobbed our boy out on the way out the door, but there is a more sinister machination afoot. The evil Vincent II, who had acquired the amulet of evil, had given it to his goblin servant, Pritchard Thrax, who placed it upon Mantar's gimmick table. And Mantar was unknowingly weakened by its dark magic. Ugh, Mantar, we meet again. <laughs> which explains all his losses on the way out and his exit from the company. These are just facts. Also the click thing. Mike either took like a bit of time off or worked like very small indies, but he later popped up as Bruiser Mastino in ECW, although the fans quickly realized it was Mantar. Such clever fans there in ECW. Can't get anything by them. Mike went into December 1st, 95 house show beating Dark Ninja. He lost to Hack Myers at December to Dismember. He lost to 911 at a house show and then beat, I can't remember how Joey Styles said it, El Puerto Ricano at 95's Holiday Hell as the crowd chanted Mantar. El, El Puerto Ricano. God, I, yeah, sorry. It's, you could hear it. Yeah. You could do it. But us as human beings can't repeat it, but Joey Styles can. Mantar keeps laying it in with his power slam, which brings out 911 to choke slam him. And Bruiser really gets up for it. It's not quite Man Scout on AEW Rampage, but it's, a, it's good. He gets up for it. In Your House 7 happened to be in Omaha, Nebraska. Mike happened to be home. On top of that, Gold Dust, who was scheduled to face Ultimate Warrior, had severely injured his knee. But Vince had already booked and promoted his fucking circus animals to shut the fuck up and do their fucking job. And that's when Mike got called in. We've talked about this dumpster fire, I think a Warriors episode. It's like an entire match of him smoking a cigar in the ring. It's, it's all very weird, but Goldie was hurt. So that's kind of the reason. It's, it's what it is. Weird fucking segment. I remember as a child this making no fucking sense yeah. whatsoever. And like just doing more weird shit like this and then the Jerry Lawler painting thing. Like it really kind of took the sheen off the Ultimate Warrior because I remember being excited about the Ultimate Warrior coming back and then stuff like this was happening and I was all of a sudden not excited. Dustin takes a count out lost and bodyguard Bruiser Mastino in full costume ends up in the ring and does a little bumping for Warrior. Mike said it was like a pleasant experience. Warrior and Gold Dust were both easy to work with, and Gold Dust especially was super nice and thankful for him like helping out. It's also a nice little payday. Although he basically did WWF a favor and it went well enough, nothing really came of it, so it was back to catch wrestling. In Germany, Mantar fused with titanium to form a metal endoskeleton, and now cybernetic, he would go by Terminator Mastino, and he finished up 96, working again just about every day of the week from July to December. Probably loving every second of it, too. TV wrestling's so different than actual wrestling. It really is. You got like, oh, we got to hit our mark. We got to do this in 30 seconds. The commercial break's going to happen here. Like, it's so overproduced that it doesn't feel like wrestling, that when you actually go out and do wrestling, it's an amazing experience. And that's like one of the kind of like one of the, the sad things that happened with us not doing house shows anymore. I'd always hear people on our roster be like, oh man, it feels like a wrestling show. Like the stuff we used to do that we used to love all the time, as opposed to something that felt like our job where we had to get this segment done. We had to say the certain thing. We had to make this thing happen. We had to make sure that these things went right. We had to have to do this or this person change the finish on us because they didn't want to do it. Like all the political things were, you know, just being at a show and just wrestling. I wish more people on our roster took advantage of the notoriety they have so they could do more indie bookings 
to really remind themselves why they love professional wrestling in the first place. So after being in the WWF for however long and, you know, squashing dudes, and even just doing that, like even even if you're just squashing dudes, it's probably like, all right, I get to have a 10-minute match and actually get to wrestle for a change. And doing that every day was probably like a good palate cleanser for him. Do we have any thoughts on the Terminator Mustino look here? I just dropped it in the chat. I mean, it doesn't really look like a Terminator. It looks like a boss man gimmick. <laughs> like, it's just... It's almost like IRS uh, if he was, like, yeah, inflated. Black, black slacks, white shirt, sleeves rolled up, red tie, and suspenders pointing at you as if you didn't pay your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so it was around this time that Mike got a call from his old pal, Brett the Hitman Hart. And after about 30 minutes of complaining about everything, he told Mike that he had an idea and he wanted Mike to oversee this new gimmick with a team of young wrestlers, the Truth Commission. Mike would head to Memphis in early 97 and start open micing the faction, taking on his own new gimmick, Tank. When Brett signed the big contract, one of the things is he wanted, he wanted to be involved with some of the booking and characters and creation because he thought he was going to be wrestling and being a part of the WWE well after his wrestling career was over and kind of to dip his toes in the booking of it all was the Truth Commission. <laughs> this was a Bret Hart thing, an initiative that he wanted done and I never understood the fucking point of it. <laughs> I never got it, but yeah, like it was just so fucking weird, but this was like a thing that they just did to see what Bret had and... This is what he came up with. This was idea number one. What is it with pro wrestling and South African Hill military gimmicks? Who is like, you know what everyone loves? The apartheid. Let's put that in wrestling. Because there's like 10 of them. Yeah, I don't understand. Especially a guy from Calgary. Like, yeah. well, I gotta, we need to really get into apartheid. We need to get in South Africans. That's what we need to do. And then, like, the Truth Commission also birthed Don Callis. So, I mean, this is clearly the worst thing that's ever happened to wrestling. Um, <laughs> like, it gave Don Callis credibility to weasel his way everywhere that he's been so far. So, blame Bret Hart. Blame the Truth Commission. That's why you see Don Callis on TV every Wednesday. While down in Memphis, Mike was actually making WWF money and was not paid in the crumbs that fell off Lawler's Subway sandwich like the other Memphis wrestlers. This USWA time led to Mike winning his first wrestling title as Tank uh, when he beat Lawler March 15th, 97 for the USWA Unified Heavyweight title. So Mantar is part of that belt's lineage with the other 4,000 holders of it. But he did drop it back literally a week later on uh, March 22nd, right back to Lawler. By June, the Truth Commission was as ready as it was ever going to be, which is not, but fuck it. So Mike would, again, be on WWF as part of Shotgun Saturday Night. I believe the shoot date's 623, the air date's 628, and the team squashes Al Brown, Gene Miller, and Terry Richards, who is Rhino, with Big Kurgan getting the pin. This takes us to Mike's WWF firing. They gave him a random drug test in a time when they didn't give anyone a random drug test. And he said that they didn't even check the results before firing him. Like, he peed in a cup and Bruce Pritchard was there to let him go. Bruce Pritchard went, uh, mm, yeah, you're out of here. <laughs> I've got you now, Mantar. <laughs> 
in all fairness, he was for sure going to get popped for weed and, and likely other things, but it's still a little fucked up. But funny enough, they brought in Rambo from Mantar's first match and his longtime friend to be Sniper to replace him in the Truth Commission. So just kind of a weird circle there. Following his WWF release, Mike wrestled a dark match tryout for WCW as Bruiser Mastino, beating Damian 666. He thought it was like one of the best matches he ever had, but he didn't get a call back. This is like peak NWO, half the roster's already not getting on TV. There's like a year missing around this time, so he's either like just chilling or working small indies, but September 98, he's back in Germany as Bruiser Mastino Classic, where he would again work on a very consistent basis. And I believe it's around here that catch starts wrapping up. Like, Otto's getting pretty old. WWF is putting a dent with overseas tours. So uh, he doesn't have catch anymore. Mantar headed into 2000, working for NWA Germany, which I did not know was a thing. He also worked for European Wrestling Promotion, which is very literal. We're all like, extreme fat dick murder wrestling. And they're like, a promotion in Europe. As the big guy went into 01, it looked like he was really slowing down. He'd spend the next several years bouncing between the U.S. and European companies, you know, being a little older, a little more selective, likely taking spots around home in the American Indies. And again, he made money in Germany, so I don't think he was like really hurting financially and desperate to, you know, go work a show. 2012, he faced Tito Santana at a, a PWS event. The Matador versus the Bull. That's that's pretty neat. That was the thing that kind of where he just popped up. See, and that's the other thing too is like people talk shit about this whole new generation era, but in like 2010, kind of like 2020, and even kind of now, there's like this whole nostalgia of that era. Like, man, the goon was cool. I want a goon autograph. Or there's some weird piece of wwf memorabilia like a trading card or an action figure or a program that's got their picture on it and autograph hunters like well i need mantar's autograph to complete this thing so you can talk shit about all you want but then in the convention circuit years from now people are going to want that autograph yeah so everybody has talked about these weird gimmicks that show up for like six or eight months and then disappear no that's going to be somebody's kind of halfway retirement and that's kind of when i started seeing mantar although like I might have heard that he was a little crotchety to deal with, which kind of goes back to my theory before why he didn't stick around the WWF at that time. But yeah, I remember him being around and people kind of being excited for Mantar. I remember being at this show and people were like, oh shit, fucking Mantar's here. People were excited to fucking see Mantar at PWS in 2012. So, Jake, you're telling me at the time he's a little crotchety, he's a little bullheaded. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, that, that was worth the whole episode. <laughs> uh, November 28th, 2018, man, well, Mike, not Mantar, was it the, uh, inducted into the Omaha Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. Well, maybe Mantar. Fuck it. I don't know. He worked with the next gen of people like a Homicide, Matt Morgan, and then he wrestled his final match. August 6, 2019, as Mantar at GCW's Joey Janela Spring Break Clusterfuck Battle Royal in Jersey, where he was eliminated by Cecil Nix. So Mantar, he had partied with the boys, uh, nothing too absurdly nuts, but he seemingly like made it out of the business in okay shape. He had health problems here or there. He ended up with diabetes, but I think he was like okay aside from the normal pro wrestling pain. He was in a few movies. 
Indoor in 2016, Toxic Tutu, which are horrors, and then a couple of short films, Buzz versus Scooty, and then No Clean Finish, which is obviously wrestling themed. Max Moon quickly evened the score and helped mow down the horde of zombie scum. Mantar and Max Moon rode into the walls of Castle Titan, where Vincent and Pritchard Thrax had fled. They approached them for the final battle. Pritchard Thrax, attack! Rehire me! Get back here, you coward! He is needless, and you are but trash beneath my boot to be discarded. Your heresy will not go unpunished. You face the scourge of the Mid-Atlantic, tyrant of the territories, and god king of the Monday Night Wars new and old, Vincent the Terrible. The duel waged on for what seemed to be eternities, but the wizard was too powerful, too fueled by hated darkness. Max Moon, realizing there was no other way, decided to make the ultimate sacrifice. The fate of the universe is in your hands, Mantor. You are the only warrior that can slay the wizard. The next time I see you, know it be with the god. For the honor and the glory of the territories, Max Moon flew his nuclear hoverboard directly into Vincent, triggering a nuclear explosion. Both my quads, they are torn at the same time. As the fallout rained down, the wizard laid weakened, vulnerable. Mantar rushed to the Chaos Wizard, driving the Sword of Crockett deep into the Dark Lord's black heart. No! But as Vincent the Terrible's lifeless body melted into liquid hush money, Mantar's victory was interrupted by a dagger driven into his back. Pritchard Thrax had returned to grovel at the feet of his master like a whipped dog. And upon seeing his god king perish, he struck man's heart from behind with a fatal blow before scurrying away, knowing that this yellow deed would curse him to the most heinous damnation, having to start a wrestling podcast. Oh no! We rushed Mantar's side, but all that could be done was to thank him. As his eyes closed and his soul journeyed to the sacred gates of Valhalla, it was with a heavy heart that we began to rebuild. Then the pro wrestling curse was like, oh yeah, Mantar. And that leads to the devastating and sudden end to his life in July, I believe the 9th, 2023. I'm not entirely sure how it happened, but I believe he took a bad fall and broke his back, his T6 and T8 vertebrae. He went to the hospital and was like, okay, enough to make a Facebook post about it. But sadly, two days later, July 11th, 2023, the mighty Mantar, Bruiser Mastino, Mike Halleck passed away at just the age of 55. Final thoughts on the great Mantar been interesting to learn more about the man behind the tar this whole episode but it's a guy that loved wrestling and that's what I always like to learn about people in the wrestling business that end up giving more to it than they should but he loved wrestling since the time he was a kid he wanted to do anything he could 
to be successful in wrestling. And he made it to the top companies, made it to the WWF, and, and he laid the groundwork for possible good runs overseas. And I, I like hearing when guys put all that effort into it and they made the trip. They did everything they could to gather all the information they could in a time when it was fucking terrifying to travel another town over because you didn't have GPS at the time and he's traveling overseas and working with all these legends and he gets saddled with the Mantar gimmick, which at the very least will make him memorable for the rest of time. It's sad that he never got like a, a bigger run with a bigger company and it doesn't feel like he got a full shake in any of these companies for one reason or another, really some of it being unable to shake the Mantar gimmick, but been fun learning about him and sad that he went so early. Mantar had a TikTok, which is just a weird sentence to say. Um, only seven videos. Mike Halleck Mantar, if you need a little jolt of positivity, because in his later stages, at least, uh, nice, sweet dude, his 14-year-old daughter filmed and I imagine did everything else because, you know, uh, Minotaur warriors don't get technology. And while a lot of wrestlers, like, use their platform to spread hate or misinformation, Mantar was all in there with love and don't give up, live your best life, etc., etc. Despite his legacy being in this purgatory of, you did bad in WWF, so you're bad, Mike had a great career, made tons of money, he worked a lot of dates, he would be a catch wrestling first ballot Hall of Famer if that were a thing. Mantar is one of the most discussed gimmicks in wrestling history, and then, like, you know, maybe a little cranky at times, but in the late years, he seemed to be an overall okay dude. He ended a lot of his TikTok videos with, you only die once, but you live every day, Mantar loves ya. And after being looked at as, you know, kind of a joke by the US audience, it looks like he got like a good bit of love back from the TikTok wrestling community. And, you know, people will never forget this absurd, unique, batshit, insane gimmick of Mantar. Yeah, like I said, everybody wants to shit talk Mantar, but I will remember when he showed up at PWS and people were like, oh shit, that's Mantar, and people were excited. Like, genuinely excited. And you can say all you want about his time in the WWF, but as I've said many times on this episode, it's the career I've hoped to have. Like, speaking from somebody that's like, I wanted to have the career that Mantar had. I wanted those opportunities because, like, that's cool. You know, you were out there, you were doing it. And, and something that, that, that Pez Watley used to say is, you know, once you go out there in front of that television camera, they can't take that back. You know, once you're in front of that live audience on live TV, they can't take that away. And, you know, he was there. He did it. They can't take that away from him. They can shit talk it all they want. But he was a part of the history of, of that company. Was he the most beloved part of that history of the company? No, absolutely not. But he was a part of it. He was there. He had a, a career that I wish I had. And I'm sure there's hundreds and maybe even thousands of people that feel the same exact way. All right. That is Mike Halleck, Bruiser Mastino, and the Mighty Mantars, Tim Bell Pod. Appreciate you listening. Check out the Pro Wrestling Tees store, the Patreon, Jake Tyler. Make sure you leave a review. That is very important. Leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Hit share as much as possible, guys. Like we are coming down to the end of this season, and it is important that you, the word of mouth during the off season, 
So that way, when we come back again, like we get more people that are subscribers and listeners, like we, we really need your help growing this show. Every successful podcast you, you hear, it's because a friend told another friend to listen to it. Everyone. And thank you always for listening. We really appreciate it. If you guys have any ideas for things you'd like to see on the Patreon-exclusive episodes, anybody you'd want us to cover, any abstract ideas you want us to cover. Sadly, there'll probably never be a, a shortage of wrestlers to cover, but we're branching out a little bit, as you've already seen in this season with, uh, with us covering kayfabe earlier. But also, just reach out to us. Say hey. Engage in some, some posts, not just for the sake of like algorithm stuff, but like, I'm interested in getting to know the listeners uh, a little bit and like having some engagement with you guys and, and just talking about some things. And um, yeah, I think that's about it. Hey, Nick, why don't you give us a moo to end on? Moo. We'll see you next week. A surge, domain, and tenebrous. A surge, domain, and tenebrous. A scourge, demean, intimorous. Who dares use his black magic to disturb the great Vincent the Terrible from his slumber? Master, please rehire me.